Good morning. Happy Easter. What a great time it is to be together opening God's Word. My name is Tim Riley. I am one of the pastors here at Church of the Valley. And if you are new or visiting for maybe the first time or the second or third, we are very excited that you're here. And as Pastor Chris said, if you're a regular, we're excited you're here too. Just saying. So we as a church community are excited that you would spend Easter morning with us. We as a church have been studying the book of Acts for the past few months as we have entitled this sermon series, which we've been preaching for a few months now, The Actions of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. We've been walking through chunks of this letter written by a man who was a historian and a doctor named Luke, the same guy who wrote the letter known as Luke, describing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In this letter that we're studying today, known as Acts, Luke describes what takes place after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, and what the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does through the apostles, men that God chose to continue the work of preaching and proclaiming the message of the gospel, the good news, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death on a cross, and that he physically rose from the dead. So as we've been studying this letter as a church, today we have this passage that Pastor Mike just read for us, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to realize the importance of what Easter represents, which is the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. What we're going to do today is study this passage that we normally would, which pretty much, uh, as Pastor Chris said, we always talk about Easter. We always talk about the resurrection each week here at COV because we believe we do not worship a dead God, but a true living God every time we open the scriptures. Now, saying all of that, we might not dive as deep as we generally do in this passage, because today I don't plan to go as long as I normally do, and those who are consistently here just thought, amen. By the way, you're allowed to say amen if you agree with something. Thank you. All right, good. Thanks, Rachel. We're going to unpack more of this passage in, Com- in Compelled, which is a evangelism training that we're going to start in about a week and a half. It's five weeks. It'll be here in the worship center in the evenings. Shameless plug. We'll talk more about that a little later. So let's read a little, talk a little, and see what God does. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, begins with referencing that this was something that was newly happening, not what we studied last week, which concluded with the apostles John and Peter continuing to preach the good news of the gospel throughout many Samaritan villages. Philip, who we're going to learn about today, is a Greek-speaking Jewish deacon, and that we heard about first in the book of Acts in chapter 6. He was appointed by the Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews to help serve within the church and care for those who were unable to care for themselves. Philip was traveling after communicating with an angel of the Lord, and sometimes when we'd be teaching something like this, we'd jump into the study of angels, but today we're not going to do that as much. Today we're going to just point out that the Lord used angels as messengers to share messages and communicate in which we see in the New Testament. Where the angel of the Lord is sending Philip to Gaza from Jerusalem, it's a pretty big trek. It's about 2,000 feet downward over many miles through some pretty sketchy desert road. And yet Philip obeys and goes even though he doesn't have it all figured out to why he's going where he's going. Verse 27, 
So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandeki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, Luke lets us in on why the angel of the Lord would guide Philip to this remote and deserted road, because God specifically had someone in mind that Philip would interact with. An Ethiopian who, as Luke puts it, is an important official in charge of the treasury of a queen, not named Kandaki, but that was the title of the queen, which was queen of the Ethiopians. This Ethiopian, who was the treasurer, had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and now we begin to see why God, through this angel, was directing Philip, this deacon, to go down a road he wouldn't have gone down unless he was led down this road. This Ethiopian, who was not a Jew, had left his country to go to Jerusalem to worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For most of us, we would call him the Hebrew God. But God did not come for a nationality. He came for both Jew and Gentile, not Jews, to redeem and make a people, a people of God with different skin colors, different backgrounds, different nationalities, different, check it, political affiliation. With the gospel of God, we understand it is the great unifier because it affects mankind's need, which is to be forgiven of sin, which we all have done, we all have done in the past, and we all continue to do. Verse 28, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Luke lets us in on the fact that this Ethiopian official not only went to Jerusalem to worship corporately, probably with other people, but while in his chariot was reading the letter we know as the book of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. This is evidence for this treasurer of great wealth that this treasurer had at his disposal. Not only was he in a chariot, which was really only for the financially elite, think Bentley, just for today's context, but he had his own copy of the letter of Isaiah, which often was incredibly rare, especially for an individual to possess. And once again, God is leading Philip step by step for what is going to be an eternal conversation. Verse 30, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you are reading? Luke's details in this story is encouraging because Philip, while being communicated with God's messengers, doesn't make excuses or need more verification. Luke says he ran to the chariot. Okay, if you're a Christian here, when was the last time you ran towards an opportunity to go share Christ with somebody? You haven't. You know why? Because we tend to make excuses when we feel an impression that we ought to have a spiritual conversation. I tend to get distracted. YouTube, anyone? I tend to make my own timing for spiritual conversations, and generally I miss out on the specific thing that God not only wanted to do in the person I was going to talk with about Jesus, but what God wanted to do in me, to grow me in faith, to grow me in boldness. Now, Philip, while noticing the Ethiopian, was reading part of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, he asked a very important and useful question. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? All right, side note, not has nothing to do with this specific thing, but single guys and gals, this is obviously a great spiritual pickup line. Just saying. Do you understand what you're reading? Or I'll give you another one. So last night I was reading the book of Numbers and I realized I don't have yours. That one works. 
Sorry. Oh, oh. Philip was seeing the opportunity that God had presented to discuss the gospel, and he began with a question. He didn't begin with his opinion. Hallelujah. Rather than preaching at or assuming that this Ethiopian understood what he was reading, Philip asked a question. He heard the Ethiopian reading, which is consistent with this time period because most everyone who read the word of God didn't read it in their quiet time by themselves. They read it out loud. And Philip saw an opportunity to dialogue about the gospel, and he began with a question to gauge interest. Verse 31, the eunuch's response, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The Ethiopian's response was one that I believe many people seeking and more importantly being drawn to and by God have, which is to have an open discussion about God's word and have a real want to understand what the text means. Real talk, um, this isn't everyone. There are people here today because they, you specifically came today because you wanted to appease your family or friend. You can stand up, I'm just kidding, do not stand up. (laughs) You came because you wanted to appease your family or friend and I get it because they kept inviting you and you wanted to be polite, or you wanted to get them off of your back, and you're like, fine, I'll go on Easter, I'll go, but you're buying lunch, right? (laughs) Guys, I get that. Guys, I was that for quite a while. It took a girl that I started to date who was a Christian to get me to walk inside a church building, and I'm not condoning flirt to convert ministry, all right? (laughs) But God did use it in my life, for, for the record. Now, going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to Taco Bell makes you a Nachos Bel Grande, okay? It doesn't. What makes you a Christian is submitting to the good news that you and I are sinful and hopeless spiritually without God intervening. But where you're going to hear, let me say it this way, how are you going to hear that message apart from a Christian actually sharing it with you? or inviting you to attend a service where the Bible is being taught. If you got invited today and you do not consider yourself a Christian, not only does the person who invited you want you to trust Jesus for your salvation, but hey, get this. They've been praying to God that you would actually turn to Jesus. Crazy, right? Did I just make it awkward for everyone? Awesome. Is lunch going to be weird now? How was the service? It was fine. Don't look. Don't make eye contact. (laughs) You're welcome. Here's the thing, though. Nothing I can say with any type of inflection in my voice, any humor, any story I can tell, or passion I can have, turns a person's heart to Christ. It is only through the work of God that someone comes to Christ. It is his doing. It is his grace, which means getting what you do not deserve. It is only through that that any of us can actually turn to God and begin an affection for this God who did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. So even if I tell you the truth about the motivations and the hope that your friend or family member have about you being here today, if God is drawing you, what I tell you about their plan and hope shouldn't make a lick of difference. Because God in his loving kindness may be making known in your heart, even as I speak, how much God loves you. 
And what a big deal it is that he sent his son to live a perfect life that none of us could live, die a sacrificial death in the place of sinners like you and I. And he victoriously rose from the dead, making a new way for people like you and I that could do nothing to save ourselves. God in his mercy sent Jesus to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from the reality that we were distant from God. The treasurer's response, as we're reading in Acts chapter 8, the treasurer's response to this question that Philip poses about understanding what he is reading is so good. How can I unless someone explains it to me? And if reading the Bible alone is difficult, let's be clear, it is. What's the book that most people tell people to read? John. And John 1 starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Anyone confused? Me too. Now, I remember reading the Bible prior to becoming a Christian with only my theories and baggage of what the filter and story of the Bible actually were. And guess what? I was wrong. Imagine that. I used to believe, like most people who have yet to meet Jesus, that the Bible is a set of rules to keep people moral and away from any fun. God, in my mind, was a cosmic killjoy, and that the Bible is the instrument in which Christians use to police other people against anything remotely pleasurable. Yeah, no. In fact, the Bible is a love letter from God to mankind telling the story of God's grace and mercy to a people who constantly reject him. Yet God constantly gives us what we do not deserve in the opportunity to come to him, not by doing more good than bad. Spoiler, none of us can, but by giving us a way in Jesus Christ, who died in our place, and as we celebrate today, by physically rising from the from the dead, defeating the hold in which sin has over all of us, which leads to death, but God destroyed death for all of those who would find their justification solely in Jesus. And he gifts us his resurrection and new life that now can be lived in and for him. Verse 32. This is the passage the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as the lamb before his shearer is silent... So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading a passage from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 specifically. And Isaiah was a prophet who was sent by God to speak of God's character and mankind's nature of sin and the Messiah. And chapter 52 and 53 point to the suffering that that Messiah would endure which on this side of the resurrection is clearly Jesus. But this was all new to those around Jerusalem and not exactly welcomed by everyone, as it meant that the very religious people who sentenced Jesus to death missed the fact that their own scriptures over 700 years previously had written that this specifically would happen to the Messiah. Isaiah's prophecy points out that the Messiah would be willingly sent to his slaughter as a sacrifice. Not pleading for his life or fighting against those who had wrongly convicted him. And Jesus is flogging and being stripped naked to then be pierced and hung on a cross between two thieves was embarrassing and unjust. And he had done nothing wrong. Yet justice would be served, not through his murder, 
but through his willingness to lay down his life for the sins of ours. But as the prophet alludes, death would not keep him. In Isaiah 53, going on in the passage of what they read in Acts, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Since 700 BC, before Christ, And even before that, the Hebrew scriptures pointed to the fact that the Messiah who will suffer for the sins of many and will have his life prolonged, meaning it will continue. And even though Jesus died, he will live not in the hearts of men, not by his teaching, but literally and physically he would rise from the dead, defining and confirming his Messiahship. It is Jesus' resurrection that makes a Christian's faith legitimate. Even the scriptures that many of us read confirm this, as Paul the Apostle, who we'll we'll study about in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, after coming in contact with the risen Jesus, he doesn't just stop condemning and killing Christians. He joins them as the most outspoken and bold apostle of them all. And he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and he says this to them in verse 13 of chapter 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What Paul is pointing out is that the church of the living God in Corinth is that our faith as Christians is not wishful thinking or based on some really good teachings but it is in a savior who was slaughtered willingly and then physically, literally, eternally, and absolutely rose from the dead. Marking himself as the Messiah that Isaiah and many others in the Hebrew scriptures pointed to as the savior of man, women, and children who would repent of their sin, which means to turn away from it and turn to Jesus as Lord of our lives. Let's look at verse 34 of Acts 8. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture, which we just read, and told him the good news about Jesus. The eunuch was searching. He wanted to worship the one true God. He didn't want to waste his time worshiping a God of his own creation or imagination. And so he asked this Greek-speaking Jewish deacon who had engaged with him with a very bold question to understand who the prophet was talking about. And then he pointed out who Isaiah was actually talking about, who he had prophesied about 700 years prior before Jesus had even walked the earth It was Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, God with skin, the gospel personified, was now walking the earth, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, and physically rising from the dead. And he invited people into the kingdom of God. And what did we do? What did the people that were like you and I, that maybe were a little religious, 
maybe didn't really want to follow God, but kind of believed in him, or maybe we just wanted nothing to do with all that religion because we're afraid it would take away from what we wanted to do on the weekends. Here's what the Apostle Peter said when dominated by the Holy Spirit, preaching at a festival known as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites, Peter says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, wow, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God, whenever it says but God, get excited. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Glory and hallelujah. Friends, this is the message of Christianity. We base everything on this event of Jesus's resurrection. Check it. We put all our eggs in this basket. Pun intended. What, what? Because either Jesus rose from the dead and is God, or he didn't rise from the dead and he's not God. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then the forgiveness that Christians believe that we have been given through Jesus' death on the cross is placebo and pointless. But if he rose, if he actually rose from the dead, if Easter isn't about Easter bunnies and chocolate, if he actually rose, then our message and our hope and our relationship with God through Jesus is secure. Hallelujah. The theologian Henry Morris put it this way. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. What many people who have attended church or have been self-identified as Christians for years on years miss is that all of what we believe is held together by this event of Jesus rising from the dead. You don't have to be a good person. God hopefully will change you if you come to him and you'll start to trust him, but no one is good but God. And it requires God to be the one who intervenes to make us do works that he predetermined that we would walk in. Prior to Jesus coming, it was said he would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again. And then he walked the earth and he said that he would be put to death. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. And God sent his spirit first to the apostles that we read about and testify about the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. You don't believe me? Let's read a little. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Peter, the same guy who was preaching at Pentecost. Peter, the same guy who denied Christ three times, and yet Jesus reinstated him. He says, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Paul, the apostle who was killing Christians and all of a sudden started to join them and started to preach the gospel while in front of a lot of city council members said this in Acts 17. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, Paul says. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed times that they should, uh, that uh, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him even though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere. You know what that means in Greek? Everywhere. To repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And check it out. He he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so I don't want to make this so simple that you don't believe it. But the reason Easter is the Super Bowl of Protestantism, I can't even say it, is that without the resurrection, we as Christians ought to be pitied because we have no hope. Paul even says this in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But let me slow down a little bit. Because my heart rate's high. What if, what if it's true? What if Jesus really rose from the dead? What if history is on the side of those who saw Jesus alive after he died? And, he, and they didn't keep it to themselves or just go back to life as usual, but then took this message to the ends of the earth, risking imprisonment, torture, and the end of their own lives unless they would recant of this message that Jesus rose from the dead. Wait, that's actually what the book of Acts is about. That we, but historically the apostles, the followers of Jesus, after Jesus' supposed resurrection, we're unwilling to give up attempting to persuade others that eternal life is offered. Forgiveness of sins is offered. Relationship with God is available all through trust and belief that Jesus actually is who he says that he is and that he actually did what he said that he would do, which was die and rise again. A story is told of an African Muslim who became a Christian. His friends couldn't believe it, and they asked him why he had become a Christian, and he answered, well, it's kind of like this. Suppose you were going down the road, and suddenly the road forked in two directions, and you didn't know which way to go. There at the fork were two men, one dead and one alive. Who would you ask which way to go? Romans 10, verse 9, Paul the Apostle says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God created everything in six days and then took a nap on the seventh day, you will be saved. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that every letter of the Bible is correct and perfect and inspired, you will be saved. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that either. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and come to church twice a year, you No, it doesn't say this. What does it say? That you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart 
that if you trust this, Paul points out that none of those silly things that I said are true, but it is only by trusting Jesus and believing that he actually rose from the dead that our faith is confirmed and our salvation is secured. Because if he can rise from the dead, he can be creator of all things. If he rose from the dead, the Bible could actually be the word of God, which does the best job of any literary book in all of history describing why Jesus would rise from the dead. If he rose from the, from the dead, your effort no longer means anything eternally because there is nothing you have to do in order to be saved, but by faith, trust the one who died in your place and rose from the dead. So friends, family, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if you do, it makes everything else in Scripture and in this life easier to understand. I was meeting with a man that I had been a part of seeing him become a Christian, and he had been baptized, and he was, he was having a faith crisis, as he put it. He came into my office, and he said, Tim, I'm really struggling with the miracles in the Bible. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, which ones? He's like, well, that whole thing about, you know, God, the uh, Israelites were running from the Egyptians and then God parted the Red Sea and so they could go through and then he, he put the water back and drowned all the Egyptians. Like, I'm really struggling with, could that actually happen? And I asked him, I said, well, brother, like we've, we've talked about um, probably the most important thing, like, do you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And he goes, oh, absolutely, with all of my heart. I said, well, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, how hard is it to part some water? And he's like, good point. <laughs> so how do we come to this God who invites us into something that is so beautiful and so wonderful, that is expressed in his great love through us, through his unmatched kindness in Jesus Christ? If you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that he rose from the dead, what do you do? Well, first off, you repent. You change direction. You hand over the keys or you let Jesus take the will or whatever other country song you want to quote, all right? You are no longer the Lord of your own life because you have by faith trusted that Jesus can and will lead you from this day forward. So then let's keep reading. Verse 36. And they traveled along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? What a great question. This man who had been told about Jesus as the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had talked about, foreshadowed, obviously included baptism in the example of what someone does once they believe. So what would stand in this guy's way from being baptized? Nothing. There isn't an expectation of a baptism class in scripture or to be confirmed or anything like that. But the eunuch's faith is symbolized in baptism as going under the water, dying to yourself and being brought up out of the water, being raised into new life. And so he asked this question with the hope to affirm his belief. And then Philip responds this way. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. When the Ethiopian was baptized, it didn't make him any more saved or right before God, but it was the first step in his obedience to following Jesus once he had repented. For many, they treat baptism as the finish line of the Christian race, but it's actually the opposite. It's the starting blocks of a life lived for the glory of God. Verse 39, 
When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Ezetus and traveled around about preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea. This conversation that was anointed by God, where he specifically drew Philip to have this conversation with this Ethiopian treasurer to the queen of the Ethiopians, shows God's care for all types of people in all types of contexts, with all types of skin color, with all types of political affiliation, with all types of pasts, with all types of demographics and age and religious backgrounds. And the reality is that the gospel can change and transform anyone from living a life to die apart from God to living a life for God and being an ambassador for the king of the kingdom of God. Worship team, you can come on up. The pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contain the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. Westminster Abbey in London is renowned because it rests the bodies of English nobles and notables. Muhammad's tomb at Mecca is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. The Taj Mahal, which was built as a memorial to the wife of one of India's shahs, is there. Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. is revered for it is honored resting place of many outstanding Americans. The garden of the tomb of Jesus is famous, not because of what's inside, but because of the fact that it's empty. So friends, family, neighbors, people who are walking by, I want to invite you to respond And by respond, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. You're not getting off that easy. I'm not going to ask you to walk down the aisle. Uh Uh-uh. If this message of the gospel has struck a chord with you, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ has clicked for you and you believe it, and through that belief you want to begin your relationship with God, I'd encourage you to tell somebody. Testify. Come tell me. Come fill out one of those cards that Pastor Chris talked about at the beginning of the service. Put your information on it so it's not like, I want to follow Jesus. Guess who? (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) I'm not an apostle. But what I really want to challenge you to do, because you you guys just need to know this. Like, I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. We call some of you Christers. That means Christmas and Easter. We love you. But that's what a lot of us do. I did that for years. And I want to encourage you, if if this has really struck a chord with you, I want you to tell somebody, someone that invited you, someone who's, you know, I don't know, me, Mike, Chris, Dan, Laura in the back. Come tell one of us. But here's what I really want to challenge you to do. You ready? Come back next week. We only have a service at 9.30, so don't come in at 11, okay? But (laughs) come back next week. Engage in the community. For years, I traveled around the country before I pastored in churches, and I preached a message about the resurrection, and I told people to repent, and I even asked them to pray prayers of asking God to forgive them of their sins, and I'd have people raise their hands, and I'd have people walk down the aisles, and we'd call it revival, and you know what it was? It was momentary lapse of judgment for some people. They didn't really believe. I just have fun inflection in my voice. And that will not save you. Only Jesus can. And so I want to challenge you, church, 
Fill out a card. Come talk to one of us after the service. Come back next week and engage in this community. 9.30 next week. And then lastly, and this is for everybody, especially if you're new to Christianity or you've been following Jesus forever or you got questions about Jesus, we're starting a thing called Compelled. Starting in a week and a half. It's going to be on Wednesday nights. Uh, begin at 6.30, is that right? 6.30 to 8. And I want to challenge you to come to this because it's an opportunity for you to hear more of what the Christian faith is about, to have difficult questions answered, and it's also going to be to teach your friends and your family who invite you to church how to talk to you about Jesus. So you can come and tease them that they're doing this. I just don't want us to miss the reality that on this Resurrection Sunday, God is just as alive as he was on the third day when he walked out of the tomb. And I hope that strikes a chord. I hope that does something in you. I hope that you don't just hear that and go, all right, I put in my time, but that you realize that God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, and it changes everything if you believe it. So we're going to respond in musical worship as Becca and Malik lead us. And the words of these songs are going to be gospelicious, trademark, all right? They're going to be resurrection heavy. Why? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is useless. But if he did, it means God is real. He wrote a book, and he told us how we could come in contact with him, which was to believe, repent, and trust him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for every person that's here, even if this is the only time we're ever going to see some people walk through the door. Lord, thank you that your gospel is preached. Thank you that the truth of your message is available and the invitation is for sinners like me who does not have it all figured out, was worthless without you, Lord. God, that that invitation is readily available to each one of us if we would simply bow a knee and repent and trust. So Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this place. May you be honored and glorified as we sing to you in praise. We pray this in Jesus' name.